normalizing eating disorder behavior. It feels super abnormal, but just saying to them, kids throwing food, hiding food, feeding it to the dog, yelling at you, this is normal for this type of disorder. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Seasoned RD with Dr. Therese Waterhouse, Certified Eating Disorder Registered Dietitian and Supervisor and Fellow of the Academy for Eating Disorders. Dr. Waterhouse came into this field quite honestly, and like so many of our highly seasoned guests, she pushed for her place at the table as an RD, quite possibly being the first registered dietitian to be told nutritionists are not needed in FBT or family-based treatment. Listen in for her response, and thank you, Dr. W., for paving the way for those wonderful pediatric nutritionists who are doing some of this work in a great way. Some trainings that she has on her website for professionals is something that you're not going to want to miss. They really are spectacular, and now they're available to all of us for free. And so check out her website. They are broken down into small bites for adult learners who are busy but want to know the basics. And I hope you'll listen all the way through Dr. Waterhouse's approach about instilling full hope and her calm, just, I don't know, um, being aware of your emotions and not being scared and being confident for the patient, for the client, and for their families is so invaluable. And last but not least, she talks about the eating disorder treatment facilitators. Listen in to find out what that role is and how it may help you as a professional in the future. Stay tuned. All right. Well, welcome. I wanted to say we are so incredibly excited that you're here and that we can talk with you and share all of your great knowledge. But we do have a few icebreaker questions. So my first one for you is, do you prefer mountains or beach? Well, that's a tough one because <laughs> I love them both. I love anything outdoors and being in Oregon. Guess what? Uh, I'm like an hour either way, east or west to either one of those. Okay. So I, I don't have a favorite. I love them Jealous. both. Okay. I will accept that. Almost everybody else we have talked to has said mountains and I'm a big beach person myself. So I'm glad that you, you can fall on both sides then. My second question then, do you prefer breakfast or dinner? Well, I'm just this equal opportunity person. <laughs> I love breakfast. I, I love to cook. My husband and I both love to cook and I love them both. I look forward to them both as well as lunch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love all the meals. I do love <laughs> breakfast foods, though. I do have a thing for like eggs and home fried potatoes with mm. kale and tomatoes mixed mm. in with it. Yum. 
Awesome. Okay. So audio book or paper book? Paper. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'm a little bit of both on that. I'm equal opportunity with the audio book or paper book. I tend to prefer audio books sometimes just because I'm on the go. But lately I've been doing more paper and I don't know if it's because of our guests that we're interviewing and they're all saying paper and I'm like, let me try this out. <laughs> all right. So Therese, uh, this is a question that I have because this podcast is called The Seasoned RD and it is, we all come into the field with different levels of seasoning. And so I'm just going to test out your seasoning so that our guests will know a little bit about you. I'm going to take you back and hopefully not too traumatizing to ask this question, but back to exam day when you were taking your RD exam. What do you remember? Was it a number two pencil or a keyboard? I think the, I think, you know, I can't even remember. I mean, gosh, Beth, it was so long ago. (laughs) Okay. I think it was a pencil, like in a big room. Because yeah. I've been an RD for like 35 years. Yeah, there you go. Okay, that's all I needed to know because then <laughs> it was definitely number two pencil because I've been an RD for about 32 mm-hmm. and it was number two pencil. And in so a big Abby's room with a whole a bunch of other people. Big room, yeah. yeah. And Abby, you know, we share in our intro session about what the uh, exam day was like for each of us. So, All right. Well, what we'd like for you to do is share with us what made you interested in this profession, kind of how you got into the field of eating disorders, who helped you along the way, any resource that that you have, and and then what you're up to now. Okay. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff (laughs) in a short time. So I think I, I got into nutrition. Well, doing my graduate work, I did a pediatric fellowship with the amazing Harriet Cloud. Wow. You know, Harriet Cloud. Yes. Yeah. I didn't UAC, know you had knew her. Birmingham, okay. who is still active. I mean, the woman is like a phenom. She was like, last year, there was a picture posted of her. She was like 96 years old playing tennis. <laughs> no kidding. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, she raised eight kids. She was a pediatric nutritionist at the Spark Center in Birmingham. She really put nutrition on the map for children with special health care needs. So I was, it was great to do a fellowship with her. It was interesting, though. We worked with children with special health care needs. So inborn errors, cleft lip and palate, Down syndrome, Prader-Willi cystic fibrosis, I mean, all those, all the rare genetic disorders. I don't think once we saw anything having to do with an eating disorder or nothing that anybody called an eating disorder. So fast forward many years, we're in Corvallis and my husband and I, we had our daughter and our son, we were raising them. I was doing some teaching at the time at OSU And my daughter was 12 and she developed anorexia nervosa. So I could see it coming. I could see dietary changes happening. And at first I didn't think much of it. I thought, oh, she she was playing competitive club soccer. And I knew the soccer coaches said things that made me uncomfortable. I remember this one coach saying, don't gain too much weight over the summer. It will affect your running speed. And I remember thinking, 
ooh, that has a sting to it. Yeah. Well, and she was kind of the very perfectionistic, high achiever, straight A's, athletically inclined, competitive, you know the drill. In fact, her dad and I, with both of our kids, we were like, you don't have to get straight A's. You don't have to be perfect in everything. Chill out. But she did go on to develop anorexia. And much to my surprise, shock, and chagrin, people didn't know how to treat anorexia. So she's 30 now. She's fully recovered. She's an attorney, so on and so forth. But at the time when she was 12, 13, going into eighth grade, I could I saw her food intake changing. I didn't know much about eating disorders. I saw her losing weight. So I took her to a psychologist, three pediatricians, a child psychiatrist. Guess what the child psychiatrist said? Well, eating disorders are a result of family dysfunction. And your family seems so functional. She couldn't possibly have an eating disorder. Wow. wow. So she wrote us off. This went on for a year and things were getting worse and worse. She was exercising obsessively, not yet. I was watching her food intake. And as a dietitian, I knew the food intake was too little and I was seeing her lose weight. And I mean, at one point, and I alerted her teachers in middle school, and I said, this is what I think is going on. I'm trying to get a proper diagnosis. All the pediatricians missed it. One of them said, oh, I think this is a growth spurt. I was like, wait, what? Let's go back to her growth charts. Wow. Clearly, there's not a growth spurt happening. I mean, mm-hmm. I heard the craziest things. And, I, and everybody seemed uneasy and uncomfortable instead of facing it head on. And so one morning, her English teacher called me. I was at Oregon State University preparing to teach. And she said, you know, your daughter has always been like one of the best writers. She's a really good writer. She has good command of grammar and English, but I'm really concerned because this morning she wrote something that made absolutely no sense. And so I had to call the psychiatrist back and I said, okay, listen, I think you've totally missed this diagnosis. I will meet you at the emergency room with a lawyer in about an hour unless you do, you know, you need to do something. And so yeah. Wow, Therese, I had no idea. And so she called me back within an hour and Cartini Clinic was a pretty new clinic at the time, but she spoke to Dr. Julia Tool, who we've become good friends, and she called me back within an hour and she said, "You need to go get your daughter and take her to Cartini Clinic up in Portland." So we did. We literally pulled her out of guess what? track practice we had shock yeah Yeah. and julia we brought her to cartini she was admitted she was in hospital that day for the next three weeks was in the hospital in grave danger of refeeding syndrome pulse going down to the low 30s that's yep and Julia too, and I could see it. I could see she had lost weight. I could see that her thinking was starting to unravel. But I was her mother. I wasn't a clinician for eating disorders. So Julia Tool said, if I had a nickel every time I saw this exact presentation, 
I'd be wealthy. Mm-hmm. So that was what when she was 12, she's 30 now. So that yeah. was a long time ago. Yeah. So it freaked me out because, like I said, I was trained to deal with kids with special health care needs. So we had a kid with, you know, Prater Willie or PKU. PKU is a perfect example. Everybody would come together. Everybody knew what to do. In the cases of eating disorders, no. So that's when I became not only an educated parent, but started, I started as an advocate a few years forward. So my daughter did well at Cartini. She did experience one relapse at age 15. We were back at Cartini and I continued. She was sick for six years and we did basically the budding FBT not anyway, so that's a whole other story. In the journey, I met Laura Collins, who actually contacted me, and I was on the founding board of Feast. So Feast has morphed over the years, mm-hmm. but I was on the founding board, and literally it was maybe 10 parents, and all of us had exactly the same story. Exactly. And tell people what Feast is. Feast is Families Empowered and Supporting Treatment for Eating Disorders. It's now an international nonprofit. Its mission is to advance the best science, treatment, and knowledge about eating disorders. But primarily, the mission is to support parents and families and empower parents, like give parents the knowledge to vet their clinicians, work with these disorders, diffuse blame. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah. So we started Feast and that was a huge education for me. I was one of the first moderators on the Around the Dinner Table forum, which is a real-time forum for parents. And you can get a ton of education as a moderator. So I saw thousands of other cases around the world. And surprisingly, so many were just like ours, where first parents were blamed the disease went unrecognized. Finally, there was recognition, but the kids were very sick. So then, I don't know, it just, I, after three years as a moderator, people were finally like, well, Therese, you, you are a licensed clinician. Why don't you just start a private practice? So I did. That was kind of scary. But I started a private practice, and that was, what, 12 years ago? Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I took the training with Locke and LaGrange. I mean, first I did a lot of training before I opened my doors. Mm -hmm. I went to lots of conferences. I joined AED, IADEP. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Locke and LaGrange, tell people about that program. Well, about the time Feast was starting, Jim Locke and Daniel LaGrange had brought clinical trials and family-based treatment to the U.S. So Daniel LaGrange trained at the Maudsley Hospital with Yvonne Eisler, who was one of the people who worked with Dr. Mnuchin, who was the first to notice that, guess what? Maybe we're wrong. Maybe parents aren't to blame in most cases. Maybe parents can be useful allies in this intervention. So Mnuchin and then Von Eisler, who I've met, I've been to his, he's incredible, right? Incredible psychologist. So Daniel LaGrange is also a psychologist. 
and he trained with Eisler. And then he came to the U.S. and worked with Jim Locke, who's a psychiatrist from Stanford. And they did actual randomized controlled clinical trials looking at FBT and FBT, family-based treatment, which I totally... So I went to their, their training at Stanford. It's a like a three-day immersion training in FBT. I was in one of their first classes where they said, well, we no longer think we need nutritionists. Well, so once again, I had to be kind of rebellious and I took them to task. I said, well, why did you even invite me here? Why am I at this training? And I still, to this day, maintain that FBT is not that different from any well-trained pediatric dietitian does on a daily basis. Yeah. Jim Locke actually told me, he goes, well, you know what you're doing. You can do FBT. <laughs> and so <laughs> exactly. it's like under the table, I think they admit the dietitians are good at this. Yeah. Above the table, because we haven't been run through the clinical trials. Yeah. So we... Um. This yeah. is what I love, Trace, about you bringing this in is that there are other dietitians in the country doing some of this work and doing it really, really well. Quite and a like, few. Quite a few. And we are not undermining the need for therapy. No. It's, it's completely about being around the table with that child and helping them through mm -hmm. that meal. And I call myself the parent coach. And in many cases, the adolescent does need their own individual therapist to, to negotiate some of the things in life that are providing them with stress, help them recognize their anxiety, and help them deal with their anxiety. So somebody said, oh, yeah, that's called split FBT. I've okay. never heard that um, again. I mean, again, there's manualized, and then there's evidence-based practice and there's practice-based evidence. And so mm -hmm. what you call it, as long as the outcome makes sense for that family unit, that's. And I think, and again, like you said, Beth, the outcome, I would not persist in any type of engagement with a family, with anybody or any person with an eating disorder. I would not persist down a path where I was not seeing good outcomes. And I think the dietetics code of ethics holds us to that. Mm -hmm. And if I was doing what I call FBT informed treatment, if I don't see it working in fairly short order, if I don't see parents able to engage with that form of treatment and pull it off, then guess what? We have to look at something else. Mm -hmm. I think the dietitian code of ethics states that. And what might a parent coaching session look like? Well, I'll just talk about the one I did last night with these two parents and they had had, so they've been out of the treatment center, which they left against the treatment center's advice, but the treatment center had allowed this kid to engage in acute food refusal and she had lost 10 pounds. Mm, in a treatment center. In okay. a treatment center. So I don't understand why a treatment center would not have the capacity to initiate NG tube feeding mm -hmm. for food refusal. Yeah. I always recommend that. 
even the outpatient, it's like, let's go to the doctor's office and get an NG tube because we have to make a believer out of the eating disorder that not eating is not an option, period, Mm -hmm. end of story, no matter what we have to do. So I was with the family in their transition out of the treatment center, which was a little scary because I think they were, they didn't have an outpatient therapist at the time. They were going to a new pediatrician. And so they were really relying on me to help them. So I gave them a meal plan template, which matched. I did talk to the dietitian at the treatment center. The whole treatment center felt like this isn't going to work. She's too tough. But I just coached the parents in how to be with her at the meals, how to diffuse blame, how to mom tends to get pretty riled up. So if I see parents getting riled up, we have to calm that down. Okay. Okay. How can we reframe? I do a lot of reframing of language. I do a lot of almost role playing. It's like, well, instead of saying it like this, do you think you could say this? You know, instead of saying, okay, listen, I'm going to replace this lunch and you have to eat it. Could you say, gosh, that eating disorder is making it so tough on you right now. I'm sorry to see that. Let's, I'm going to replay your lunch because the kid at one point threw lunch across the room. I said, yeah. Not unusual, is that? No. And that's the other thing, Beth, what you just did, normalizing eating disorder behavior. It feels super abnormal. It feels creepy to some parents. But just saying to them, kids throwing food, hiding food, feeding it to the dog, yelling at you, this is normal for this type of disorder. And so instead of you getting all upset You have to calm yourself down, Mm -hmm. take deep breaths. If you as a couple have to have some kind of code where you give each the other person permission to leave the room, go outside, scream into a pillow, whatever you have to do. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. These parents as a couple were kind of mom kept saying, well, dad isn't supporting me. Dad isn't supporting me. And, Mm is lovely he's much he's very calm and I said so it sounds to me like as a couple you need to take this outside of mealtime don't wait for the mealtime to start having this conversation take it outside of mealtime and have a discussion mom what does support look like for you mm-hmm. what does it mean when you mm-hmm. say dad you're not supporting me yeah. what should he do different that would feel like support for you. Wow. So as you're talking, my mind is just going to all of the things that you've accomplished. And one of the things that when you talked about this particular family was as they're transitioning from a lot of times I will, if, if one of my patients leaves a center AMA, I I have a hard time accepting them back. I want them to get the full course of treatment. However, you're patient wasn't getting that full course because they were losing weight and the treatment center was pretty open. But one of the things was I had to not had to, you said I was getting them connected with a therapist and with a pediatrician. So tell me, you had a grant where you did some trainings to bring in non-specialists in the field and help train them. Can you want to speak about that? Yes. So After doing eating disorders work for a number of years, you know, I, I, 
develop trust amongst some therapists, nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors in, in this part of Oregon. And at one point I applied for this grant. It's called a health transformation grant. Cause I really, I was getting calls from all over Oregon, especially underserved areas. So Eastern Oregon, Southern Oregon, the coast. And we have a tri-county coordinated care organization that manages the Medicare funds. And so it's Lynn Benton, Lincoln County, all underserved, all semi-rural and coastal. So I applied for that grant and it was specifically aimed to train healthcare providers who weren't necessarily eating disorder specialists. So I got the grant and over the course of a year, and Beth has access to mm-hmm. little training videos. That was part of the grant was getting training videos. So I recruited maybe 60 providers, 20 of whom were physicians, PCPs, psychiatrists, also dietitians and therapists. I set up a listserv for us. We used QStream, which was developed at Harvard. It's, it plays up adult active learning skills. So it's basically repeats key concepts. So we use, so every month providers would get new short little videos and embedded videos. It was some type of video thing for learning. And I kind of went sequentially through the neurobiology of eating disorders, what are eating disorders. We had the nine truths. So the first couple months was just orientation to what eating disorders are. Then we went into eating disorder screening and evaluation, like mental health evaluation. Then we went into medical complications. So I had experts like Jennifer Gaudiani did the medical complications. Anyway, it went through the whole year. We covered binge eating, pediatric cases, FBT. Mm-hmm. It came out pretty good. I yeah, real good. Oh, it's a, it's a resource. And now it's available for others? It's open access. I just paid to have it migrated to my business website, which is Willamette Nutrition Source, and it's under ED Resources. So I'm hosting it there. And yeah, so it's available. And I would love for people to access it as long as it's still current. I think in a couple more years, it may not be as current. So it was good. We went through this whole year training. And oddly, a lot of the PCPs dropped out. Mm -hmm. So it kind of reconfirmed to me, PCPs are so overstressed. I I developed a lot of sympathy and compassion for Mm -hmm. frontline physicians. I met with, so during the course of the grant, I met with GI groups. I met with all the directors of internal medicine. I met with pediatric groups. I met with school counselors. I met with county health departments just to kind of understand because we were also trying to develop referral pathways Mm -hmm. there is resistance to universal screening because people don't have places or other people to refer folks to yes so that was a big thing to learn and the pcps in post training surveys the number one reason they gave for dropping out of training was lack of time They said, these are too difficult of cases for us to manage. We don't have time. We have Mm -hmm. to meet quotas. We get 10 or 15 minutes per patient. Mm -hmm. How the heck? And so then I did ask them, well, would something like a 
health navigator or eating disorder treatment facilitator be helpful to you? And I described it as another licensed, experienced health professional, very literate in eating disorders, but somebody where, let's say you suspect an eating disorder in your office, you could just contact this person and say, I need help. Can you give me advice? And they give it to you. So I know that Beth and I do that every day, right? (laughs) And you did a survey of people in the field, and I was hoping you were going to talk about this. Mm -hmm. So the eating disorder treatment facilitator concept kind of came out of the fact that with this grant, PCPs dropped out. And at first, I was so disappointed. Then they all nodded yes. In surveys, 96% of frontline healthcare providers said, yes, we would love those kinds of people. And I was kind of self-reflecting and saying, well, this is kind of what I do anyway. All these doctors in this part of Oregon know me and they call me all the time for advice. Mm -hmm. So then I joined up with both IADEP and AED And we did a survey. First, we did kind of a short survey of providers. Then Suzanne Dooley-Hash, who has worked with me in the Medical Care Standards Task Force of AED, we got IRB approval for the second survey, and we sent it specifically to eating disorder organizations. And we had 684 respondents, and almost all of them said, yep, I do this kind of work. And the people who do this kind of work by and large are dietitians and therapists. Most of them have at least five years experience in the field. Most spend at least five hours per week doing this work, which is not only unrecognized, but unpaid. Unpaid. And that, I mean, I could, we could, have an entire season of podcasts on examples of things like this. And just recently, one of my older teen clients, I reached out to the pediatrician and the the doctor said, well, considering he's a boy, it's probably not Uh an eating disorder. And, and, and let's, I mean, I have this person set up with a therapist who is eating disorder specialist and had diagnosed him with anorexia nervosa. So we got him into a semi-special doctor. (laughs) When I say semi-special, well, adolescent med specialist Mm -hmm. who said it was, it might likely be ARFID. But again, it doesn't matter what, I mean, this kid went from the 75th percentile weight for height down to below the fifth. Mm. So the, you know, this kind of work, this person showed up to me first, the dietitian, and then getting them to a good therapist first and foremost. And, and well, not first and foremost, because of his his weight changes, getting him into his primary care doctor, who then I didn't have a sympathetic ear with that, but was willing to get them to the specialist. So this is the kind of work that we do. And it takes a lot of time. And and it's necessary. I mean, every highly experienced dietitian I know does this. I just last week, a week ago, at seven in the morning. Also, I was talking to the Academy for Eating Disorders executive board, because I'm trying to convince them to endorse this concept. And I'm saying, you know, we're not training up a new entity. The fact of the matter is, these people already exist. 
They're mm-hmm. already working hard in this field, which tells me this work is necessary work. So mm-hmm. we can, can't ignore work that is necessary to help patients. We yeah. have to stop ignoring it. We have to recognize it. Once we recognize it, we can effectively, and we get endorsements from like NIDA, AED, IADEP already has endorsed it. But once it's endorsed by key organizations, then we can effectively market it to the American Medical Association. Hey, you need that warm body. You need that person, that Therese Waterhouse of your area that can... Yeah, right. I mean, and I still I've been in this field for 30 years in the same city. And I don't have a great list of resources of medical providers who are either not weight centric or who understand Mm -hmm. eating disorders. So like you said, you have that respect for them. They don't have the time. There's just not enough resources around. And so the dietitian and the therapist or just the dietitian tends to do a lot of the legwork. And once we really get doctors organizations to accept it, that's part of what I call the marketing aspect then we can also go to insurance companies and say, okay, come on, we need codes. Mm-hmm. We need a code for this. Some dietitians do bill under coordination of care codes, mm-hmm. which is kind of iffy if you'll get paid. But we need solid codes for this kind of necessary work. So that's my latest gig. Yay, I am so happy. And I I can tell already that we're going to have to have you back once we get this going. And if there's any way that any of our listeners can help you at the end of this, we're going to make sure that they have a way to get a hold of you. You've given your website, but Trees, I has all my contact info. Awesome. Okay. Is there anything else that you'd like people to know? Abby has kind of a wrap up question for you, which I think with yours, we may want to spend just a little more time than just a quick answer, because I I know you have something really important to share with us. But anything else that you want us to know? No, I did just help write a grant to do, again, provider training for Douglas County, which is Southern mm-hmm. Oregon. So the training aspect right now, I'm, I'm really enjoying training other healthcare providers, so increasing that awareness. And I just want all dietitians, especially if you're going into this field, eating disorders, be really confident. Don't let people tell you that dietitians are the low man on the totem pole. I've been told that in the past. Yeah. And it's like, oh, heck no. <laughs> a huge amount of scientific knowledge. We are excellent counselors and We do nutrition therapy really good. Don't let people tell you that that you're not as good as you truly are. I love it. Thank you. And because this podcast is for all professionals in the treatment of eating disorders, it gives the the therapists and the medical providers really good resources to say, I need a dietitian on my team. Or when a dietitian reaches out to you for help with a patient, then working collaboratively. So important. Mm -hmm. Okay, Abby, you go for it. Yeah. And well, and just reflecting here, I know that where we are in the medical fields, 
relating to eating disorders, we're not exactly where we want to be, but compared to where you told us the story about what your daughter was going through and, you know, there was nothing, you had nothing, but here we are, we're doing better. We're getting there. And so I I think that you explaining these stories and explaining, you know, the grants that you're doing and how you're sharing all this information is exactly what other healthcare professionals need to hear. Because even if, you know, these physicians don't have time, well, they can at least know the resources. And that's what's mm-hmm. truly important. We have to give these eating disorder patients that good care. So I just have so much respect for you, Therese. But my question for you now is, if you could take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you know now? I think and I guess it kind of depends where that entry point is in, in my case. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest thing is how to instill hope in people for full recovery and how to really, really meet people, like how to really help them know that I have great knowledge and empathy for where they are. Like my biggest job I feel is to have people trust me and Mm -hmm. so knowing how to get that trust which Mm -hmm. I think comes with practice because like I started in the very beginning it's like we always need to check in with ourselves and make sure we ourselves do not bring bias or stigma or preconceived notions into the room because each person truly is different so we have to get to know them and their story and their fears and respect the fear that comes with eating disorders and not be afraid of that fear also yes. will add to it. That's what you're saying is that one thing that you noticed is that your clients feel like clinicians don't feel comfortable with them. Mm-hmm. So that checking in with themselves, how does one do that? as a newer clinician coming into the field? You need to be aware of your own emotions. Like when you walk into the room with a person or you're reading a new client history, what are you feeling? Are you feeling scared, nervous? Are you, when you walk into a room and see a person who's, I'll never forget one of my clients who a dear woman who the first time she self-referred and she was five foot eight and I walk into the waiting room and her weight was like at 72 pounds. And so what, what is your reaction to that? What do you feel? Right. How, how can you in that moment calm your own self down, you know, mm-hmm. so that you're truly bringing your centered grounded self to this person's organization of care and so that you can help the rest of their family and supportive other people also calm down and bring the best Mm. possible support to them Mm -hmm. and that includes people no matter what their weight if you hold weight stigma weight bias we have to check in with ourselves and keep doing that work because clients pick up on it And this is a highly sensitive field. Yeah, 
And so being aware of your own emotions, and I think that that really comes into play with with getting some supervision Mm -hmm. about yourself and how you show up in the room and you use the word checking in with yourself. So it's it's understanding and being aware of those emotions. Thank you for that example, too, of walking into the waiting room and seeing that that particular client. I had a reaction, too. Yeah, (laughs) I had a reaction. And then I had to say, okay, okay. Now what? Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. Yes, Therese, thank you. This was, I mean, amazing. I, f- I feel like I say that about everybody, but I truly have learned so much from you. And again, just the utmost respect. But for our listeners, how can we get a hold of you? How can they see new things? Therese Waterhouse is up to platforms that you may have. Well, I think you can start with my website. It's well, I'm at nutritionsource.com. It has my contact information. A lot of people contact me by email. I I'm not one of those people that like every week I'm throwing tons of new stuff up on my website, but it does have the training videos from the yes. 217 training mm-hmm. under resources. So you can see a few things there feel free to contact me. I try to be available. Life's been pretty busy, but I I try to be available, especially to, you know, other clinicians. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you guys for your work. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.